Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Max and TV. I'm your host, Max Lansman. We got a great show for you tonight. I mean, you can't, how can you get any better than this? I literally have the one of the founding members of freaking Wendy's on my show. I mean, Jim Cheatham, Dewey Cheatham and Hal. I'm sorry, Jim, I had to, I was very uh, tempted. But Jim Cheatham, one of the founding members of Wendy's, uh, was tasked in the beginning from Dave Thomas, one of the, found, the founder of Wendy's, to create the first 25 stores down in Atlanta. I mean, we're he knew the Colonel personally. Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC, the Colonel, as we all know him, as like an icon of fried chicken, he knew him personally. Wendy, from Wendy's, he knows the girl. It's absolutely insane. He knew, he knows everything from the fast food industry. He was there. I mean, the stuff you're going to hear, you're probably not going to hear anywhere else. This is one of the, probably the most incredible interview I've ever done. Um, he's literally a walking United States history book. Um, screw going to class, just watch this interview. Um, the stuff you're going to hear is probably you've never heard before. Um, it's just a true honor and privilege to have him on my show, Jim Cheatham. Hope you guys enjoy. Here we have the quintessential Jim Cheatham. Jim, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a real honor. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to have to be here. Absolutely. So you just got to tell me, I mean, you were there from the very beginning of Wendy's. You were there with Dave Thomas. You knew the Colonel, Colonel Sanders personally. Um, you got to tell us about that. How did this all start and how did this really come to be? Because it is well, Wendy's. Let me give you just, a, just sort of a, if I may, just a little bit of history of my background quickly to, to get to that sure. point. Sure. Uh, I was I was a young man from country 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 town in Tennessee, Alamo, Tennessee, where David Crockett was born. I was raised on a farm, and when I was senior year, when I graduated from high school, my mother died when I was nine years old. Mm. And I told my dad, I, of course, back in those days they didn't have student loans. Right. I said, Dad, I want to go to. I've been thinking about joining the military so I could go to GI Bill at night and get my degree. And he said, well, you have to make that decision, son. He said, you've been independent since you were 12 years old. He said, if I told you to go and you were wounded or something, I'd never forgive it, forgive myself. If I tell you don't do it, you'd always wonder what if. So you've got to make that decision. Now, I'll make it short, but I went to the military. I was in 10 years, two years of it. I was in uh, security service in Pakistan during the U-2 spy plane situation, so forth. And I got my college degree after 10 years. I finally got my college degree going to GI Bill at night. And the general in Pakistan told me, he said, Cheatham, with your background, he said, we'd like, I want you to re-enlist. I said, no, sir, I don't think so. I have my degree now. He said, what in the hell are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. He right. said, we need people like you to help us run this military. Well, wow. I was awarded the Air Force Commendation Medal because I restructured the whole division and saved Uncle Sam about $3 million a year back in the 50s. Wow. Well, he shook my hand. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, sir, but this is not it. I'll know it when I see it. Wow. He, spoke, he shook my hand. He said, God bless you. He offered me a, a direct commission to captain immediately if I would stay. And I said, no. Wow. I went, got out of the military, 
went back to Tennessee and went up a fast track at Holiday Inns and became senior VP of marketing at Holiday Inns. But there was an old fellow there that was a friend of the uh, chairman. And uh, Dr. Dr. Norman Vincent Peel, very famous evangelist like Billy Graham. He was a Methodist man, man, uh, minister. He was a friend of the chairman at Holiday Inns. And I was appointed to be his valet anytime he was in town. And another personal friend, a fellow named Hartzog, and he was a big investor with Colonel Sanders when they started KFC. That was one of the first franchises. And franchising was, was just not even known. Uh, that was KFC and then Dairy Dare Queen. This was what year exactly? Yeah. Now, actually, what happened? Dave Thomas worked for Colonel Sanders in KFC when it started. Mm. But Colonel Sanders was not a corporate guy, and he was a panhandler. Right. And so those investors saw the, pop the opportunity because he was going to go bankrupt. Wow. They bought him out, got him, gave him the white suit to wear and be an ambassador. And then Dave Thomas wanted had this concept for Wendy's of America. He, so he told me, he was from Memphis. He owned a bread, colonial bread distributor in Memphis. And he knew me from Holiday Inns. And so he kept picking at me and he said, boy, I'm going to steal you. He said, I want you to come go with me and meet Dave Thomas. So I got on his airplane, went up there one weekend. I stood in the kitchen of Wendy's store number one. Dave Thomas explained what his concept was. And I already had a background in analyzing companies because of the Holiday Inn's experience. And I was consulting with Wall Street and changing what's doing what and how fast things are going and that sort of thing. And so when Dave explained to me his purveyor belt type concept, I looked at Mr. Hart and I said, I like this. He said, okay, make a, story, a short story. He said, I want you to go down to Atlanta, Georgia and be my president. And I want you to get 25 stores open in two years. While Dave's building Ohio, we're going to build Georgia in that area, and it's called confidential, and we're going to do this in two years, and then we're going to put them together and merge and go public. I went to Atlanta, and I, I can tell you some serious funny stories about Colonel Sanders. He would come out with me. Sanders asked me one day, I was raising hell about a, I was running stores, building stores like crazy, and I was griping. I was having a drink with him in, in, in my office. Mr. Hart and he flew into Atlanta. And Colonel Sanders said, uh, how you doing, boy? I said, Colonel Sanders, these signs are killing me. They're costing too much money. He said, let me tell you how you save some money on signs. See that sign out there where it says entrance and exit? He said, take the exit signs and throw them away. Let them find their own damn way off the floor. <laughs> That's one of the stories. There you go. All day long. I do a lot of public speaking about some of those old war tales. I'll give you one more quickie on Colonel Sanders. I went to a hotel in Holiday Inns and I was taking pictures and it was in Gary, Indiana, and they had a, a lot of problems, uh, very restrictive. Colonel Sanders was sitting in the lobby and he was there waiting for a limousine to take him to a, to a, uh, a new opening of a KFC. When the limousine pulled up, he jumped in, and away he went. They pulled up in front of a Wendy's store. And Carl said, 
what the hell is this? <laughs> he got in the wrong room. Actually, he went to a McDonald's open, and a McDonald clown <laughs> was waiting for his ambulance, for his limousine. That's hilarious. We had stories like that on and on. You literally, like the entire history of American fast food was in like that lobby of that hotel. Absolutely, yes. Wow. I was involved in a whole lot. Of it. I did a lot of analyzing for companies after that, but we built the stores, and no one knew but us. They kept it very, very secret. And uh, Hart Jog said, "Jim, he owned the, he owned the building. It was the office in Atlanta. He handed me the clear title of the building." And I used that for construction loans. And and he said, I'll come out every three or four months and see you, Jim, and just send the paperwork, run it like you want it. Put my name on the on the checkbook, handed me the checkbook. He said, I'll be in touch. How fun. He said, I'm not going to give you a contract. He said, I don't believe in contracts. My word is my bond. And I know you and I know all about you. He said, if I haven't fired you in a year, and I'll do more than I said I would. And that was my contract. He gave me a copy of a stock certificate out of the copy machine. He said, here's your piece of paper to get home. That's a true story. A year later, he came to my office. He flew down. He said, Jim, I promised you something when we started this thing. He pulled out that comma, that his briefcase, and he said, here's you the original stock certificate, and here's another one to match it. And he did. And so then... When that happened, it all went, we went public. And the first convention was in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's when the announcement was made. And all the all of us were behind the scenes, and Dave Thomas came in, and uh, we went from there. Wow. And after that, Dave did his best to try to get me to come to Ohio to be president of the company, and I wouldn't do it. I was president of the franchise. We were the largest franchise. And I think I told you briefly in our other discussion, uh, that Coca-Cola owned 98% of the market in the fountain service. Right. They worked Pepsi and Colonel Sanders. And the Coke guy didn't know who Dave was. So he said, no, nah, you call come back to see us when you get 25 stores. And uh, Dave got mad and went over to Pepsi and said, you know who I am? They said, of course we do. Well, they gave him the contract. <laughs> so and the rest is history. That when, when I was building real fast in Georgia, all the other franchisees were smaller franchises, but they all were coming to me then and said, we got to get Coke in here. Coca-Cola is just, we've got to have it. Our, our suggested boxes are stuffed because everybody don't want Pepsi. They want Coke. So I told you that little story, but I won't tell you all of it. I told you it was some, uh, some of the uh, negotiations. But a fellow named Cochran called me and said, the chairman of Coca-Cola wanted to just kind of have lunch with him. The man's name was Ed Keogh. I mean, Don Keogh. Two billion dollar Coca-Cola company, and I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, couldn't get to get a thing. So finally, they knew I had the authority because they qualified. I could make the change, and I did it without telling Dave. I just called my my chairman and said, "This we've got everybody's after it." Dave wanted it. I'll save face because he don't have to back up. And Dave wouldn't back up, and I knew it. So I made the change. And then I told my chairman, let me call Dave, and I'll tell him. And he said, you know he's really going to jump all over you. I said, that's quite all right. I've taken beatings before.
for. I like to take another one. I called Dave, told him what we did, and he yelled at me over the phone and hung up. I said, well, that was a good night, sweet, sweet conversation. There we go. So then we met at that meeting that was eye to eye. He came over to me and he said, boy, you got big ones. I said, Dave, we all want it. You know it. I did it for you. He shook my hand and winked. We went from there. And I guess I started, trained in the first store, and that was in, uh, I believe, 1971. Yeah. The merger, finally, we went public in 1970, May of 1975. And from there, I went on my, I had my own. I would, I refused to go to Dave. So I, Mr. Hart had a bunch of KFC stores. Well, he liked the chicken business, too, with Colonel Sanders. He mm-hmm. did he invented the pressure cookers that Colonel Sanders was using. So then he wanted to go back in the chicken business. And since I had my nest egg then from the Wendy's program, I said, I'll tell you what, Mr. Hart, I said, I'll, I'll help you get the first three or four stores going and I'll help you find the guy to operate them. And we opened a chain called Mrs. Winter's Chicken and Biscuits. And that's when Wendy's started having, I mean, uh, Mrs. Winter's started having chicken biscuit breakfasts and so forth. And he uh, did three stores, three or four stores, I guess it was. And then I got him a guy to run it. And I went on my way. Well, they finally, Mrs. Winters, I don't even know if it's still existing. I just was my own path in a different direction. But from that, I've, yes, I've been, I've done turnarounds. Uh, I've done a lot of marketing strategy, but basically, infrastructure development is my forte i know how to develop the ceo systems and put it together a company right and i came to tampa in 1995 and i met the young lady that's now my wife we had both had previous marriages but we were both single for a long time she's a master's graduate and very high up in, in the art, fine arts world, all the, the old, very famous artwork. She's, she's an authority on it. She lectures at the museums and so forth, and she was the art critic for the newspaper here for 30 years. And when we met, the chemistry just clicked. We dated for about three years. We said, let's check the suitcases. We've, we've already been there. so right. we, and we're like two lovebirds now. We just uh, enjoy it. We're both very, very active. I thought I was going to retire three or four times because I went through a car wreck yeah. about four years ago. Wow. A young teenager texting ran a stop sign at 50 miles an hour and tore the front of my car off and put me in the hospital. Wow. Well, I need to retire. Well, I don't work like that. And I think I did mention to you that I also had a, an opportunity. A magazine wrote a story about me, and I said, there'll never be a rocket chair on my front porch. That's right. That's my right. slogan was just one more. So how, how can I, what questions can I answer for you? No, yeah, so it was, um, well, number one, um, what was it, I mean, was it really, like, for example, why didn't you want to continue, I guess, with Wendy's and kind of, build it out more from there is it for you is it more about just starting it and you know you get you get your well, rush that became, that became my my passion later on but why i refused to go with dave i said dave 
I've been a Southern boy, Tennessee, all my life. And every time I went north of the Mason-Dixon line, that's right. That's right. And I said, I don't stay up for over three days. And that's I, heard, right. I heard that you didn't care much about Ohio. And I said, I don't care where the snow is knee deep. There you go. Turnaround companies in Nebraska, all over the country in situations like that. And then actually in my own mind, I developed, I said, I realized all I'm doing is cleaning up someone else's problems. That's not building. And I realized my passion is building and growth. And so that's what I, I, I'm still doing that today, using my 50 years of experience and assisting and analyzing companies that look like they're going to be the next big one. Right. And I've trained myself from a CEO point of view to analyze what they're doing and all the changes of consumer behavior patterns, the demands of each generation and how they change. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now this situation we're in now, it's really been a mess, but right. my passion is helping companies grow that I see that there's a niche for it. Right. I'll qualify myself and looking into different types of segments. It doesn't have to be food. Right. Energy, uh, environmental change, things like that. Right. You said you had a lot to do with the telecom in Tampa Bay, correct? With the what? You said uh, you had a lot to do with getting phone systems in Tampa Bay originally, right? Yes, I was a consultant that built the infrastructure right. when they were starting putting in the cell phones here. Wow. And I became the guy that put together the, the uh, infrastructure for Tampa and Orlando. Wow. So I, I arranged the organization and built it where we had the real estate people and the lawyers and the contractors and the installers and the equipment, all that sort of thing. Right. All how it all came together and how to step it and then go out and find places to, to, to lease to put towers. And my job was to get 300 towers up as fast as I could. Right. In years, we had 300 towers up. Right. And so then that's when I went on to something else. Right. And I did that. Everything I do now is in a growth situation, and that's my passion. Of course. These companies, I analyze them, and I just tell them yes or no. Or, you know, if I can't help you, I'll tell you right up front. It's not about the money. Right. It's my thrill to get it done. Right. That's what I do today. And so now I've taken one step further, and I have a little company called Alamo Funds. Right. I focus on private equity or private lending, and I analyze companies and decide what they're doing, whether or not I'm interested in investing with it. But I don't get involved with anybody. I don't want a part of their company. Uh, they just pay me the normal returns on investments, and if I see the right ones, that's what I do. Right. And I'm just ha I'm having fun, and I go. Go back to that Dr. Norman Vincent Peale that was one of my favorite mentors. He said, Jim, if you learn to love what you do every day, you'll never work again. There you go. Yeah, I feel I have fun every day. Right. And then right. in my own slogans, just one more right. slogan. Right. But then, then I wrote the book and I couldn't I couldn't remember it at the time. Right. Non-textbook approach to leadership. Right. Right. I use that a lot. But the biggest and best thing I'm proud of is, in fact, it's on my LinkedIn now. There are four different 
categories of characters that it takes to build a company. And I show, I teach CEOs how to be a CEO and how to build their company. And that's how I did it. And right. you build a team into an army. There we go. That's literally what I did with Wendy's. Right. And what, what are those things? Well, for example, I, I went at Wendy's, I talked to my guys when we first meet each other, just like you and I now, we've met. You know things I don't know. I know things you don't know. Now we put these things together. We've multiplied ourselves. This is the way I taught my, my managers and my supervisors in Wendy's. And I said, now we're now we're, we have something in common. So we expand on that. And then we leverage what we know. And that leverage brings back residuals down the road. And the, one of the biggest lessons I tell them, I'm a servant to my to my company. It was not a pyramid, and I was not the man up on top of the pyramid. I was down under looking up. I said, I'm not the, the director of the choir. I'm a servant to my shareholders. I was a, a servant to my employees. I was a servant to my customers. My main concern to my employees were that I gave each one of them, I said, if you have the responsibility to do a function, then you have the authority. So you don't have to come and ask me, should I, this man's not doing a good job over here, should I transfer, should I let him go? I'd say, what do you think? I said, you have to understand, if you can't do it, then I need to get a supervisor that can. Right. You don't have to ask me. So they knew, they learned quickly sure. that whole army of the Wendy employees in our, in our system, everybody had everybody's back. And I'd even have little, I knew every employee, I'd go through the stores, and let me tell you one long one, that, that, that yeah. where the just one more came from. Right. On Christmas Eve, before we knew it, no one knew we were going to be merging. The Christmas Eve before New Year's, I had 23 stores open and two under construction. And it was a 200-mile drive around Atlanta to all the stores. I started at 7 o'clock that morning, and I went to every store in, in Atlanta, and I shook hands and wished Merry Christmas to every employee and every, I knew the sick babies, the mothers, whatever, all the way around the store. Well, the word got out that Mr. Cheatham was out and coming around to the stores. That night, at 10 o'clock, I got back around to the last store. That was store number one. And my home and my office was about 10 minutes from there. As I came around the interstate and I got to the exit, I said, man, I am so tired. And I eat at the store every day and all those kids know me in there. So I'm just going to go home. And then that click in me said, just one more. Because that's what I've been teaching them. I got off the interstate pulled into the parking lot. They were, it was after closing time. The supervisor was standing at the cash register and the store was empty, but the lights were on. We had uh, uh, secret symbols and, or signs or so forth that there was a problem. When I came up to the door, I, I saw that signal from him that there was a problem. So I went in the door. I said, how you doing, Jim? And he looked at me and said, Mr. C, I, you need to come 
to the back room. I said, all right, let's go. And I didn't know what, I, what to expect, but I was assuming I was going to be running into a problem. I went in the kitchen, walked around. The whole crew was standing in the back of the kitchen. When I walked through, they all started singing Merry Christmas to me. Wow. And the little girls had me a, uh, had made me, a, crocheted me a, about a three-foot-long Christmas stocking. And on the toe of the stocking, it says, Mr. C. It boarded on the toe of the stocking. Wow. Tears came to my eyes, and when I got out of there and I got sitting in my car, I fell apart. I said, good Lord, if I had not done my just one more today, I would have lost everything I built up and all of these people. Wow. I, did, I did my just one more. Right. And I still do that today. Wow. Is it is it fair to say, without you, we might not have Wendy's today? Well, I can I can't. I can't say that. that uh, thank you. Uh, I, I say I contributed to it. I guess. Right. And I told uh, all of the franchisees down anywhere, Tennessee, whatever, they would call me. What do you do now? And I'd go. We'd go up to their. I, I've trained a lot of their managers in my store. Little did they know that I also was doing it for my benefit too. I was training their managers. But I said, I'll train your managers, but you have to pay it. Right. So I had an extra hand in each store every time I was helping somebody else. There you go. So you want things and you chain them out and you everybody's advantage. Right. Yeah, that's what it's all about. It sounds like one of the main things that you do in terms of training, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of other leaders don't. It's simply they don't actually like for example, I'll give you one example. I was working for a company that shall remain nameless, right? Mm -hmm. um, let's, say was, let's say it was a department store, right? It was one of my first jobs. Uh -huh. People would come in all the time, very high-end stuff. Gentleman came in, looked for, he was looking at the $300, a bathing suit for $300. You can buy food at Wendy's for a month and still have change left for that. And so um, he had, he had, I asked him, what, what size do you need? He's like, small. Small, simple. I look for it, I don't see a small. Where's the small? I'm like, give me one moment. Let me check on the computer for you. Go on the computer. There's no small. I ask uh, a senior person to come over. Could you help me out? Maybe there's a glitch or something. He looks on it. He's like, Max, not only do we not carry a small, we don't, not only do we not have it, we don't carry it, period. We don't sell size small. <laughs> I mean, I'm, is this a store? You know? And I, this is a guy that was willing to spend $300 on a pair, on a bathing, one bathing suit. And, you know, he's wearing a Rolex watch. Obviously the guy's very wealthy. He's a guy that, you know, you want as a customer to come back, spend thousands of dollars. So uh -huh. I go back to him and tell him, I'm sorry, sir. We think holding a size small is weird. Please never come back to our store. You know, what am I supposed to tell him? We don't carry small. Uh -huh. I went to the manager. I went to the manager. I asked him, I'm like, listen, this, this is not happening once. This is half 40% of the people that walk in here cannot buy anything. They're like, here is my money. I, I'm trying to give you my money and I have to tell them, I'm sorry, we don't want your money here. Um, the, you know what the manager tells me? He's like, I'm sorry, we can't hold every size in the store. <laughs> that's a lack of, that, that's a lack of leadership. Unbelievable. And I said, I'm like, this company will be bankrupt within 10 years. And I'm not too far off right now, by the way. Uh -huh. It might have uh, ex expedited the process. 
Um, so um, you, you look at you look at Bill Belichick, right? The best, arguably the best. Co- Are you a football fan? Oh yeah, of course. Who do you go for? I'm a Buccaneers guy. You're a Buccaneer, okay, fine. But I was Braves when I was or or Falcons when I lived in Atlanta. Larry, oh, you're a Braves fan. Well, that too. Yeah, oh, I, I don't know. If we can, I, I don't. Know, I don't know if we can still talk. I'm a big Mets fan. You know how many Sundays you've ruined from the what? Braves. What? I, I don't know if we can continue talking. I'm a Mets fan. Oh. <laughs> well, you know how many? You know how many Sundays you've ruined for me growing up. Chipper <laughs> Jones has ruined. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Countless, countless. Well, that's that's what it's all about: is happiness and teaching people how to do better. Working teamwork is the hardest thing in the world until you really understand it. Had a young man. I told you about the chicken stores. Right. One, I, I could not hire a Wendy employee after we merged, of course. And when I started that chicken chain, I had to uh, under the contracts. I could not hire a former employee. That worked for me. Really? Okay. But, but here's a good uh, a good little story. Uh, I had a supervisor, a young man, one of my best men in Atlanta, and he kept thinking he was going to be the next supervisor. Okay. Well, the date of the uh, the announcement all came out about about thirty days before that. I promoted another man that was just as sharp. I promoted the other man to supervisor. And Mitch, Mitch was this guy's name. Mitch said, Mr. C, what did I do wrong? I said, what do you mean, Mitch? He said, well, I, I sort of thought, because Mitch would always go and I'd sign him to a store that needed to be cleaned up and straightened out. He said, I thought I was going to be in line for supervisor. I said, Mitch, one of the things you need to do is you need to trust what I'm telling you. Wait 30 days. I can't tell you what's going on but you just have to believe in me and trust me. He said, yes, sir. Well, then when that day we went to his store and found out then they all heard the story that we were merging. And when I came in the store, he looked at me, he said, Mr. C, where are we going? Where are we going? I said, Mitch, be quiet. I'll talk to you later. And then, but I couldn't hire him. Well, when we, after the merger, uh, the Dave Thomas, the corporate headquarters, they sent a man in then to run it. And Mitch quit. Mitch called me and he said, where are we going? we got to come to work. I said, what are you doing, Mitch? You know I can't hire you. He said, I don't work for them anymore. I quit. I want to work for you. Because he was the man that you're like you were talking about. The supervisor that he was working under was one of these guys that slung chairs across the room and had a little Tipper fits and people and stuff like that. And so Mitch wanted to come to work with me. I said, Mitch, I'd love to have you, buddy, but it's not going to work that way. I said, I'll tell you what, you need to go and talk to Mr. Hartzog because you have to, if he, you have to have his approval before I can hire you because I think too much of him. And I said, uh, you would have to go through you. Two days later, he called me. He said, when do I start? I said, you talk to Mr. Hart? He said, yes, I did. Mr. Hart did his best to try to try to talk me out of it. He said, then Mr. Hart asked me, he said, well, Mitch, why are you leaving? Why did you rather work for Mr. Cheatham? He said, Mr. Hart, quite frankly, because Roy, that was the guy, the other guy's name, he said, I already know how to kick down the door. 
Mr. Cheatham will teach me leadership and management. Mr. Hart said, God bless you, boy. Good luck. Yeah. He came with me. And then when I did some of those turnarounds, I won't even name them, but I went to two or three companies, as, a, as, a, as I told you, a turnaround guy. I didn't have a title, but I was a consulting type, but I carried the title of assistant to the chairman or whatever. One day, several years later, I got a call from a headhunter in Atlanta. He said, Mr. Cheatham, I need your help. And I knew the guy, and I said, what do you mean? How can I help you? I've never used your services. He said, don't you know what your nickname is? He said, well, every time you leave a store and you leave to another company, all the people follow you. Your nickname is known as Pod Popper. <laughs> gracious, I never knew that. But it, it, it happens two or three. It happens three or four times in restaurant business. I would go to another one, clean it up, and half of those guys would go with me. And uh, it was a team effort, but that's what it's all about. It's knowing how to get the whole, everybody on the same page. That's why we did our Just One More slogan. I say, if you just do one more thing before you go home tonight, then that's between, we've got 3,000 employees here at Wendy's. And if we each do just one more thing after we punch out, then we've done 3,000 more tasks got done today that McDonald didn't do, Burger King didn't do. And that's how we built the, the speed of core in the company. Right. I remember you, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. What? Sorry, go ahead, you were saying something? No, no, I just, I'll just give you one story after another sort of, sort of okay. it all came back. But then that's when I decided to do, what I really got into it is when I stopped doing the turnaround because I said, I'm just cleaning up someone else's problems. And now I do a lot of, uh, my whole passion is using my experience to analyze companies. And I've, I've saved several companies when I was a consultant with Wall Street, when they're doing their year annual portfolios, the Outbacks, the whatever, Panera Bread was an example. And I did a whole case study on Panera Bread. It helped them turn around because they were behind the curve on what they were doing. Really? It was very simple. Let the millennials bring your knapsacks over to your store and play with their computer there and the Panera Bread. They did it. All of a sudden, they started growing because their customers were not coming back. They were not getting repeat business. So I yes, said, you need to create this, this new concept Oh, come on over here. You work here. And then it turned around. But it's not always magic. It's kind of like I used to quote some of the football coaches a lot. Don Shula used to say, uh, failure is not, is not fatal. But winning is, I mean, nothing but winning is the only option you have. That was Vince Lombardi's. Right. And I used to give my guys motivationals would see the, the managers would have videotapes uh, from uh, people like that, giving them the, the how to do it, pull it together as a team. Right. And I would tell people, look, when I meet people, I'd say, when I meet you, don't look at me and just say, you don't know anything about me and you don't know what I want. I don't know you and I don't know what your passions are. So the best thing to do instead of just talking all about what you're doing, and that's what I tell clients now. When you're talking to an investor, 
don't spend your time telling him how great your gizmo is because he don't care either. But what he does know, so the way I brought it up is that when you get into negotiations, I'd say, how can I help you? It's a totally different stroke. And it all comes down to people, people being people. Right. And I don't, I don't go do politics, but I have to agree with one thing right now. The, the slogan under Joe, Joe Biden's deal right now is we need to unite America and rebuild it. Right. No question about that. Situation, we've got to get through it. There's no question about that. I mean, I don't think anybody has seen anything like this, even close to this. Nobody, nobody even close to it. Uh, my wife and I compare back in the Great Depression in 29. We're, we're in a huge depression here. But we've come, we've seen things. When I joined the military, I'd never seen an airplane in my life. Wow. And I'm Memphis, Tennessee, and I got on a DC-3 little three-wheeled airplane, and I'd never seen an airplane. Right. And talk about scared. But I was strong enough that I wanted something big enough, I was going to go for it. Right. And I turned down and I resigned companies for that very reason, too. It's just, it comes down to what, what they even it up so that everybody's a winner. If you play that game that way, that's the way it goes. Right. And uh, I, at, the end of one of my, uh, at the end of one of my speeches, I usually use a little term. I tell people, I'd have people stand up. I went to Brazil, and uh, a guy flew me down there to be uh, the speaker for his salespeople. Okay. He built water coolers like Nestle's or these water fountain coolers in the, in the hallways and so forth. Right. Upper hills or whatever. And I didn't speak. I didn't speak Portuguese. His brother was vice president of Berlitz language. And so he was my translator. And okay. I told him what I was going to do when I was announced. Jones just introduced me and I came up on the stage with my with his brother, my translator. And I looked out at the crowd, there was about a thousand of them there. And I held out my hand and I said, I'm not a speaker, I'm a ventriloquist. And I pointed over to him. And that brought him up and got him smiling and going. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, there was one girl that worked for me in Atlanta that was from, from there. And she taught me, I said, teach me how to say just one more in Portuguese. And she explained it to me. Una mas. She mm-hmm. said, if you say it technically or break it down to English translation, it means there's not any more. It's just one more. <laughs> right. Una mas is just one more. Right. And so at the end of the, the speech, I stood up and I said, everybody point your arm to the, to the sky and say it after me. I said, una mas, una mas. And first thing you know, I had everybody in the room was stomping their feet and so forth. And then I stopped and I said, now raise your hand again. Now point up to the sky and say, if it is to be, then point it to yourself and say, it's up to me. And that's the way I would close out. I love it. A lot of fun. I enjoy it. How many how many speeches like that do you think you've done? Probably hundreds or oh hundreds at least. Yeah. yeah. Rotary clubs. I do not 
I do not speak for companies. I'm not on the speaker circuit, and I'm not interested in that. That's part of my putback. Gotcha. I've been on the board of directors of several colleges, and, and uh, I speak to every graduating class at uh, University of Tampa here, and uh, things like that, and uh, at Rotary clubs, chamber of commerces, associations, nonprofits, anything like that, and uh, and I speak uh, no charge. It's just a, the pleasure of doing it. Right. Why? Why? Why turn down companies? I'm not interested in the money. It's about the satisfaction of helping somebody. Of course. And that goes right along with what my, my personal passion is, is helping growing young companies what to do next. Right. right. Follow the little LinkedIn stories that I have on my LinkedIn. Right. There's always a lesson on them somewhere. Right. And they mean something. Right. Change them around. Sometimes I usually put something called humor for the weekend. Right, I, I saw the one with the tiger. You saw that? Wasn't that cute? The tiger's in the spot? Uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> they called his mom and him money from Frosty Flicks. There we go. <laughs> Got the right idea. Yeah. Doing stuff like that. But I really do uh, use those. For example, I, I live in, uh, in a penthouse here in Tampa on, on the high rise on the water. And I just happened to have my phone by me. And Pelicans flew over, and I took a picture of those pelicans. And there on the on the Malinka, they're still on there now. That's why I love Florida. And then I sent another one just the other day. You look at the top of my LinkedIn. They have we have storms here. This is this time of the season. But there's one here this afternoon. We'll get one. Right. And you look out the window. Ten minutes later, the sun's shining. And so I caught a picture of a big heavy cloud over here. And you look to your left and it was a blue sky. And I said, are you feeling down a little cloudy? Look for the bright side. Right. I saw that, yeah. Try to put a lesson into it. Right. I didn't realize you actually took that picture. I thought you just got that somewhere. I didn't realize. I didn't realize you actually took that picture. I took it on my, I went out on my balcony and took a picture wow. of the clouds. Wow. It made, because I believe it, I want to relate to people get something from what they're looking at, whether it's funny or strength or whatever it is. Sure. Just like the last picture on mine, I'll never take off. Mm. That word integrity. Right. And it, it stays on there all the time because that, that's that's what it's all about. 100%. Yeah. Do you, do you see that, that doing business today is a lot different than doing business? Like today to do business on a handshake, it's like not as common. Like what do you think is missing did it? Well, that is what's missing. It's not happening. Yeah. There's too many people. Somebody asked me about the millennial generation. Well, I've studied all of that stuff. I went to psychiatrist. I'll tell you another little story. And some of the studies I took all over the country, they were free, but they were we had to be you had to be invited. You couldn't pay to come to it. Right. The psychiatrist in, in uh, UCLA was talking. He said, "Okay," he said. Everybody take a spoon, spit in the spoon, look out and look at it. Now put it back in your mouth. He said, yeah, you don't want to do it, do you? He said, listen, there will be things happening at some point where you will have to defend something over which you have no control. At your positions as CEOs of work, 
you'll be required to defend something that you have no control over. And less than a year later, I got a phone call from a food company, hospitality magazine editor, and of course, they, my name is out there, they knew who I was. He said, Mr. Cheatham, this was back, I don't know whether you were old enough to know when they had uh, things come out with that chocolate covered crickets and worms in your meat and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And this guy asked me, he said, Mr. Cheatham, is it true that you have worms in your hamburger meat? Guess what my my trigger answer was? That, that hit me just like that about what that, that professor said. I've got to defend this. I said, do you realize the cost of worms? I couldn't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all negotiation. That's what, that's what it amounts to. You have to have fun and enjoy it. That's funny. I remember you you were mentioning to me uh, when you first heard the when Dave Thomas is telling you the, about the concept of Wendy's. You were like, the last thing we need is another burger chain. That's right? exactly what. When Mr. Hart wanted me to go, I said, all we need is another silly burger chain. Right. He said, come with me and go see what this man's doing. You know how to analyze a company, and I know all about your research you've been doing with all the ends companies they're buying. And he said. I want you to go up there and let Dave tell you. And I went up there and stood in the kitchen. And the first thing I asked Dave, I said, how are you different from the other hamburger stores? He said, I'm using the automobile philosophy. So what are you talking about? He said, it takes six hours to build an automobile, but it takes one minute for a new one to come off the end of the line. And I decided if I designed my kitchen, to do the same thing, I could put a hamburger fry and a Coke on a tray in 10 seconds. I said, hell, you can't do that. He said, okay, today at lunch, you stand up behind the cashier with the stopwatch and watch it. And I saw people standing in line were to be digging in their purses and digging out their belt wallets. And I'd say, get your money out, folks. Your deal, your meal's ready. They'd say, what? There it is. Oh my goodness. And I'll tell you, they got 10 seconds, 8 seconds, 9 seconds. Good Lord. He designed the kitchen. The purveyor belt went to two different directions. What I mean by that is the grill was a middleman, but he had a sandwich table on one side, a sandwich table on the other side. And then there was one employee that had a job to do. If it said fries, then he needed to get put fries on the tray. So there was a speaker at the, at the at the cash register. When you turn in the order, that speaker, that, that cashier would repeat the, the order. But when that speaker repeated the order, that was the instructions to each one of those people in their positions. And so they did all did it at the same time. Bang, it was on the tray. Wow. After I started building Atlanta in Atlanta, and we just went crazy, Bob, we were just mobbed. I had to have three or four policemen on the parking lot cover the traffic we were going so strong and that was at 63 cents a piece for the hamburgers wow and four thousand dollars a year was the goal when we merged i was doing six hundred thousand a year and dave was doing four hundred twenty thousand a year in ohio and the guys in memphis were doing believe it or not eight hundred thousand a year wow memphis wow. was just a red hot market and Mr. Hartzog, my chairman, 
his son got that franchise. <laughs> Until later on, it merged as well. Yeah. What it all comes down to is understanding the systems. Well, then we started building so fast in Atlanta. All of a sudden, I saw Burger Kings and McDonald's. They didn't have drive-through windows. I saw them building those drive-throughs on the side of the building. But within a month, I saw them closed, and they were using it for bread, for bread locker storage because they had a Chinese fire grill in the kitchen. They couldn't do it. The kitchen wasn't designed for that. They didn't know what they didn't know what Winch's deal was. But it also one of the biggest key things by two was Dave said, we'll never use a frozen meat. Right. And everybody else uses frozen meat even today, but Wendy's never did, and they never do. Right. Right. We had, all meat, we had meat trucks coming. My son worked at a, uh, was going to college, and he got out at noon, my oldest son, and he is, his job was to go over to the warehouse where we quietly had our own arrangement in our own factory. And he delivered fresh hamburger buns that had never been in a freezer. And oh. we delivered meat that had never been in a freezer. Logistically, how did, how were you able to do that? Because that's a that's a quite a task, especially it's not like at the time you had 25 stores versus having like a store every block. How mm -hmm. were you able to kind of pull that off? Yeah, well, you mean from pulling it off, you mean how long did it take me to decide where to put a store? No, like, to, have, to have fresh meat all the time, I mean, meat goes bad, right? Yes. I, oh, yeah, I understand. Follow you now. What actually happened is our meat company, we had a direct order. Our meat was delivered twice a week. Gotcha. It'd come in in bulk. And it, was in, it would be in the cooler, but it's never been frozen. Right. But we but Rita came several times a week. Then we had a patty patty making machine. We didn't buy we didn't buy boxes of patties. We bought meat, right? Big, big blocks of meat. And then in the morning, the first guy there, his job was to patty the meat for that day. And the fresh meat patties were patted every morning. And they, that's that's how you do it. And at night, now here's a little story behind it. At night, when you get through. You'd have a little, when they get through patty, you'd have some meat left over. Well, they'd wrap it with saran wrap and throw it back in the corner. But then the, the managers got lazy because each time they patty the next morning, they're supposed to go get those little round ones that were left over and add it to the meat from last night. Mm -hmm. If they didn't do it, I called them boo, black, black balls. How many balls you got in your kitchen or your refrigerator? They could they come me in. They had to be sure they had to do that. That was one of those things, the manager's responsibility. Just follow the reasons and this is what it does. It worked out. Wow. And the and the buns as well. So you were getting shipments directly from the bakery, just like meat, you were getting shipments directly from a meat well, product? Mr. Hart owned Colonial Bread and fought off the union back then, and he, started, he changed it to Hart's Bread. He had his own bakery. Oh. So then after we started Wendy's, we went to an unknown spot, unknown warehouse, and we brought in his baker, and we made our own hamburger buns. Oh, wow. wow. And Dave Thomas just had a lily fit when he found out what we were doing, and it just, we, we, we froze them. We put a freezer out back for our bread, mm. and every morning, 
would go in, we'd go around a warmer box in the kitchen. And every night the guy would go out to the freezer, get out the buns for tomorrow and put them in that warmer. By the next morning, it's just like it came out of the oven. Wow. And Dave was scared of that because he didn't like it because he didn't want anybody to see that freezer and they think we're cheating. Right. I mean, something fresh. Right. He found out real quick that was the way to go. Is that how they is that how they currently operate? Is that still the way they do things? As far as I know, but I have been around them a long time. That was fifty years ago. <laughs> right, right. There you go. Well, I mean, yeah, they're known for having fresh meat every single day. Every That's, day. Yeah. Only only recently McDonald's started doing fresh meat because they were trying to compete or or whatever the case may be. Well, that's what each one of them are learning. They were trying to kind of what was what what came next. In fact, one of the famous, most famous ads that Wendy's ever had was a little girl, and I knew the lady, Claire Peller. Where's the beef? <laughs> you ever heard that? Of course, sure. And you knew a little old redheaded lady, and she'd shake her hand at the where's the beef? Right. They look at the size of the beef. And somebody asked Dave one time, why are your hamburgers square? So you would ask. But actually, it, it looked, looked a lot bigger with quarters of meat coming out of the bun. There we go. Wow. That's funny. Had, there were little things like that all along the line. Like, for example, in the very beginning, Dave, his daughter was named Wendy. Wendy was about seven years old when it started. And uh, Wendy's little red-headed girl. Dave wanted to put a big portrait of Wendy in every store in the dining room. And we said the smartest man in the room was the artist and the marketing guy that got Dave to not do that. <laughs> Came up with the Raggedy Ann doll concept because Wendy was going to grow up and nobody would know who she is. And Dave finally bought that. And that's why the little, that little Raggedy Ann doll became the, the logo. Did you meet Wendy? Did you ever get to meet Wendy? Did you ever meet the real Wendy? Did I? Yeah. I knew Wendy, yeah, when she was seven years old. There we go. And today she's living out in Dallas, Texas, and her and her husband own 40 Wendy stores. Wow. Last time I saw them, and her mother was just the sweetest, quietest lady you've ever imagined. And Dave was a hell-raising bit for weather. Dave's biggest, I shouldn't say this, but Dave's weakness was he was a workaholic. Uh -huh. I'm driven, and I'm not a workaholic. When it comes time, I unplug. Right. I tell people that know me, don't try to call me after 4 o'clock. Right. I turn my phone off at 4 o'clock. Right. And you see something on my LinkedIn. Every weekend, I have something on there about this is the day to relax, be with your family, go to church, whatever it is. This is family day, and rewind. Monday will come fast enough. Right. But Dave was a... 24-7, he just it was made that way. And he died when he was, uh, back in, he died in 1981. He, yeah, he was on a dialysis machine every day, but people didn't know that for the last two or three years. Right. But uh, some people just don't know exactly how to do it. And I'm, I know I've got faults too, but I haven't found them yet. <laughs> there we go. So when they originally merged, so they became automatically company-owned stores? Yes. So because today, I know they have, what, they have like 6,000 locations, but I believe they have 353 
company owned locations. So I guess out of those were part of the original. Um, I don't know how many originals there are now, but back then it, it got up to where there were 6,800 windows. Right. Okay. I don't know how many of them are, I don't know how many a company owned. Cause like, like I said, we, we were the first one and we merged it, got it going. That was how the company grew. And then they built and developed uh, the, the other franchises. They, but in my, I was part of their, their, uh, I go to monthly meetings up to Columbus to meet with their guys too, to discuss how do we expand this further and how do we do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to think that I contributed some things there to them and helping all these franchisees on how to go about developing them and develop right. them, develop them faster. Right. And man, more technology and the, and the quick way to do it. And so then we had, roving guys that would come by and inspect it. Well, back in the Holiday Inn days, they had Holiday Inspectors who would come in a hotel and they go through it and grade it, and the manager would get a rating depending on how good he was running the store. Right. It's the same thing at Wendy's. Right. Wow. And do you ever go back to Wendy's? you still go back to Wendy's at all or no? Or are you keeping it? Frosties. I'm sorry? <laughs> Frosties and the chili. I, I used to I used to live on a cup of chili, and and right now, I quite often get me get me up for a chocolate frosty. Who created the frosty? That's the most genius thing I've ever. The name is great. I love it. I don't even know who named it, but it, it, that was it's the genius. original original dessert. It was it was not a milkshake. It was not ice cream, but it was thick enough that you could stand a spoon up in the middle of it. That's right. That's right. Every time I see the commercial, that's all you want is a frosty. <laughs> there we go wow this was uh this is incredible interview and i really appreciate your time and everything wow um i appreciate you calling me max it's just always a pleasure anything we didn't cover any any uh any more secret stories that you would like to share or anything of that nature uh not as much as i could but i i can't i told you some of it yeah, you told me the one with Coke and Pepsi. Well, we're not going to mention um, all right. the lock and key. I already threw away the key. There's stories all over the place, like like the guy that came to work for me and when Mr. Hart asked him why would he want to go with me, he said there. because I already know how to kick down a door. Well, Mr. Hart there. knew exactly what that was all about. Absolutely. There we go. There we go. So and this, this guy was was girl crazy also, and every time a pretty girl was hired, he fired to go find another good one. <laughs> so, I mean, all kinds of little games like that were played. Right. I forgot. Yeah, no, so a follow-up question I had was the drive-through. You mentioned that uh, McDonald's and Burger King, they were trying to put in drive-throughs, but they couldn't, they, they, they didn't work. It, who? The kitchens were not designed for it. Right. So, so obviously they have them today. How, how did that get implemented? Did Wendy's figure it out first? Who, how did that work? That's how it worked. Dave Thomas determined the whole thing based around this assembly line concept like an automobile factory. Gotcha. Burger King and, Burger and, and McDonald's and all the rest of them were already out there and they didn't know what the deal was. And when they started putting drive through windows, they had people running all over each other in the kitchen because they didn't know who's ordered, would that order go, where's this order? I don't know, what, what's this? Right. And it took them quite a while to get it organized where they could. Got you. In the meantime, we were already gone. 
It was Wendy's, Wendy's was doing drive-throughs from day one, or yes, yes. wow, gotcha. yeah. I used to stand as as the president of the company when I opened the new store. We had a we had a big. Uh, I'd have four or five policemen to keep the parking going. I gave away a little tin Lizzie the car that had a little motor on it, so a little kid could drive it in the yard and whatever. And we'd have drawings I'd, and. One one somebody we didn't know it until afterwards. They won that car that day. I'd get a new little car for each each uh, each store, and I would stand by the register out front, welcoming people to Wendy's, and say, "Please get your money ready because your order will be ready before you can get it paid." <laughs> there we go. There we go. What? What? So why when Wendy's first started? Why? Why was it one in Ohio? I mean, obviously Dave Thomas was in Ohio. But it was in Atlanta because you were in Atlanta, so he started in Atlanta. No, no, no. Hartzog, the guy from Memphis, in Atlanta, was at Holiday Inns, and he was a big investor with Dave Thomas. Gotcha. Two big investors, a fellow, uh, and that was the chairman of Hospital Corporation of America in Nashville, Tennessee. He and Mr. Hartzog were big buddies. Jack Massey was his name. They were the two heaviest investors behind Dave to get it started. Gotcha. And they bought out Colonel Sanders and Dave, when they found out about Dave's desire to do this. Gotcha. And so Colonel was about, within 30 days, he was going to be bankrupt. And so they made a deal with him. If you want to hear that story, John Y. Brown is a name that everybody knew as a famous KFC guy later on. But John Y. Brown was a young lawyer in his daddy's law firm <laughs> in Columbus. And his daddy was a, the lawyer for all of those investors. Well, John Y. Brown was his son, a young lawyer. And he went with Colonel Sanders, flew out to Denver, was going to sell, uh, get a, pick up a $50,000 check get this, uh, this company to buy what was left of KFC before he filed bankrupt. Mm -hmm. They had a layover in Denver, Colorado, and he called, John Y. Brown called his father back and said, Dad, he's looking for $50,000 check. They said, turn him around, bring him home, we'll buy it. They turned him around, went back, and, and John Y. Brown didn't know the first thing about a restaurant. He was a lawyer, but they made him president <laughs> and put him in charge of the gatekeeper to watch the money. And he right. had a, a legal structure behind him. Wow. And so that then they hired the right operation guys to run it. A fellow named George Teeter was one of the original, and Jim Neer were two of the CEO types working under Dave that put Wendy's together. Wow. And so after they bought out Colonel's, they rented up the flagpole. They paid, they paid Colonel Sanders two and a half million dollars to buy it. And he didn't want it. He wanted cash. He wouldn't take stock. They tried to tell him what they were going to do. He said, no, I want cash money. That was the old talk in those days. And sure enough, seven years later, they bought out, they built up KFC. Mr. Hart was one of them too. They had invested it them going. They ran it up the ladder, sold it to Yums, 
for $285 million. I believe it was $185 million. And so then that's, that, that's when we destroyed him. Wow. And those guys, I went to the first meeting with Mr. Hart. All those investors were standing around the table. And Mr. Hart and, and the, the other investor talked to the group and said, fellas, we bought out Sanders. Dave Thomas here is ready to go. And if you want to, step up and help us finance it, and we'll take this thing to the moon. And that's what it was. Those investors around the table bought into it. And boy, are they smiling today. Yes, sir. <laughs> unfortunately, well, but fortunately for me, the good Lord's been good to me because I'm still here. Right. My boss, that, that was my main mentor, Mr. Hart, died in 1985. And he was, uh, I believe he was 83 years old. Well, guess what? I will be 84 years old, August the 12th. Wow. I want to wish you a happy birthday in advance. It's uh, in 10 days. And that's right. And my wife's birthday is August the 14th. Wow. She's not, nearly as, not nearly as old as I am, but I can still keep up with her. There you go. There you go. Wow. She goes walking every day and I go down to the gym. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I'm going to set that in my calendar. I'll give you a call for your birthday. I want to give you a call. Um, Appreciate I it. Absolutely. No, this was on, this was unbelievable, unbelievable experience for me. Um, I really appreciate you being here. You really are just a walking history book of America. This is like one of the biggest things that ever happened. You know, it's, it's, I've been called, I've been known as that. I'm pretty well known about it. Wow. That's insane. But I I enjoyed it. And if, if my main objective is to pass on some good to someone else, that they could see, help them, whatever they're doing, they could put that to work behind it. That's why I told you about what I do on LinkedIn now. If you look at the pictures, there's a story behind every one of them. Right. And it's to leave a little bit of piece of me to show you how to be a leader. Right. And that's what it's all about. Absolutely. So if you if you want to end up to say one thing to uh, you know an entrepreneur, somebody who wants to start a business, uh, how would you? You, I'm going to give you the floor, however way you want to end off up to you what would i say to him yeah like um yeah to end off the one thing that he should take with him um you know if he wants to start a business or anything especially now you know with everything that's there's going a, on there is a on my linkedin there's a black and white photograph of me it's an article and i say there you know, there are four characters that makes up a good company and each one of those characters, no one has more than maybe two of those characters, but nobody has all four. But you need four characters to build a company. So you go to my LinkedIn and you see that black and white and click it on and read that article. The first one is a guy that started it. You gotta have somebody that has the vision and know where it, the desire to do it and how to do it. Then the second man's character is a character of a general manager that can run the operation. You got to have a guy that favors the customers and that they are hell bent for leather to take care of the customers. And the last guy is a guy that in the military, it was a master sergeant, the old first sergeant. Right. Right. The rule was, just get it on, just get it done. Somebody makes it happen. 
but it takes all of the those ingredients of the characters you need. And I I have done I do I do I, it's not about the money because I don't charge very much at all. But I do charge. I won't work for anything. My 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 prop my what I'm doing is very valuable. My time is the best valuable thing I have. But people come to me, said I will teach you how to be a CEO, and I charge them a fee. And they say, well, how do we do that? I'll say, well, the first day, I charge them something like four or five thousand dollars a month. And we'll do it for three months or six months or whenever you want to stop, if you think you've got a handle on it. But I said, the first thing we're going to do is you and I will meet alone, just me and the CEO, the new person that owns that new company. And I tell them, we're going to spend a half a day. And the first thing we're going to do is I'm going to be the teacher and you're going to be the pupil. And the first thing I tell them is you must understand that your character your character is the core culture of your company. Whatever it is, your company is going to carry whatever you put there. So fortunately for me, the team I built, when, when we sold out, my back, my guy surprised me at right now in, in my other room. I have a three-foot high lion statue and it sits in my office wherever I am because I'm a Leo. And that was my going away gift from the, from the supervisors. Oh, wow. Wow. And, uh, but the point is I'm, I'm making is the, that it's very important that CEO guy, the starter, that's why people ask me, how do you define a millennial? I don't. They all have a backpack and none of them have an idea where they're going. Uh, they just, that they think they're going to invent a new app and somebody will give them a million bucks for it. Right. right. So that's what it's all about. It's where do you start, and then how do you go to the next step and the next step, and that's that's what I live for. Right. My profile. Did I send you some of that? Yeah. Uh, profile. That's my passion. Is using my experiences to help companies that I see that I think they have an opportunity in high tech or whatever it is. High, but it's got to be in those niches where in medication or high tech or environmental, whatever, or the next thing. The food industry has just called the hell the handbasket now. They don't know who, there were no one delivering anyone anything. And now there are 20 delivery cars in the same town, delivering for everybody, grub hubs and all of those. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where it's going, but the generational changes is what's affecting it. Every generation is different. Right, 100%. I just keep living on just one more. Just one more, 100. percent And I'm glad that I'm glad that one, there was one more to come on uh, Max and TV. Uh, <laughs> well, if I happened to, if I happened to right now open my shirt, you would see a note right across my T-shirt says just one more. Just one more. There we go. Well, again, uh, Mr. Cheatham has been an absolute honor. I really appreciate you coming on. I've learned an absolute ton. Um, I'm sure a lot of everyone who's going to watch this uh, has learned as well and cannot uh, express my deep appreciation for being on the show. Thank you, Mike, so much. I appreciate you. In any way I can help you, just let me know. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, We'll keep in touch. Okay, buddy. Thanks.